one. Hi everyone, it's Adam Beck here, uh, back in the Smart City Chronicles podcast with you. Welcome to episode eight. Uh, for those that have been listening in, um, we are amongst a series of episodes that are looking more deeply into some key enabling uh, issues for smart cities action and investment, uh, namely collaboration, standardization, and smart city strategy. Uh, today's episode um, is going to be uh, touching on that collaboration topic. Uh, joining me is uh, Sean Ordain from Wellington City Council in New Zealand. Uh, Sean, thanks for joining. Hi, Adam. Um, where do I where do I find you today, Sean? In the office? No, I'm in Greytown, just outside Wellington. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, I um, I wanted to uh, start by asking you if you could give our listeners a bit of a a bit of a snapshot and bio of of who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm the City Innovation Lead at uh, Wellington City Council. I'm part of a team that looks after both uh, the smart city work streams, but also how council's changing the way it does business to better relate with our community. Um, and for those listeners, Sean, that um, aren't necessarily familiar with Wellington, can you give us a bit of an overview about the, about the city? Yeah, um, we're a metropolis of about 500,000 people, so it's not that big. And Wellington City is the core city in that. So we've got about 200,000 of those people and most of the uh, office work and industry. Uh, some of the distinguishing things about this city is it's built on the end of a mountain range that plunges into the harbour on top of a major fault boundary. So it's very steep, it shakes a lot, and it has a habit of slipping down. But despite this, we've, also, we've managed to become both the hub of the country's government, but also... Uh, one of the great movie-making centres of the world, and we lead in a lot of different types of tech industries. And that combination of massive exposure to foreign uh, industry and a fairly shaky foundation means we face some unique challenges. I um, I, I wanted to sort of um, share share with the listeners my first uh, arrival into Wellington. Uh, I think it was about two years ago. Um, landing. Uh, via plane landing in Wellington is like threading a needle <laughs> through a very, very, very fine piece of cloth. Um, it, it, whether you land depends on how how the wind's blowing and what's going on with the weather. Um, but once you sort of arrive in Wellington, as you say, Sean, that um, that sort of international presence around movie making is 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 very much in your face with some of those um, ginormous uh, props from. Um, uh, from the, the movies uh, Lord of the Rings um, and it's it just gives a personality and a presence to, to Wellington that is that is very unique um, so Wellington and smart cities um, I'd love to start by uh, asking you kind of where it all started and why um, what's what's sort of been the journey so far broadly uh, that'll that'll sort of set us up for some some deeper dialogue around um, uh, city vendor sort of collaboration and working together. But uh, tell us how it started and, and, and why. Well, about five years ago, uh, a bunch of us were sitting around at the city council and we, we saw that the, uh, the next big thing was going to be being a smart city. And uh, we did a bit of research and we discovered we didn't know what that was, but it was going to be fashionable and that's what we wanted to be. So, 
we started to dig into it and we started to engage a lot with our community hacking groups and also some of the people about town who make some really remarkable things. And we said, well, actually, this isn't something we want to be. This is something we're going to be. And what we did was we started to work out what a smart city was for us, what we could learn from other cities, what we were going to have to learn for ourselves. And from there, we started to develop areas which we found challenges in, areas where we had some natural strengths and we could improve on those. And from there, we started to generate an idea of what a smart city is, what it'll evolve along and how it's going to work for us. So, so you started pretty early chatting with people. Um, that, that sort of hacker community you mentioned um, gives a sense of sort of what, what's out there in the community. What did you have to, to work with? Who did you have to engage with? Was it emerging, emerging fledgling, um, you know, been around for a while? Um, it was a group of people who had been around for a while but what they had done is really mobilised their communities, particularly out in places like Miramar, one of the suburbs of Wellington. And they were basically saying, council, this is how we want to talk to you. Look at the stuff we can do. You can't do this stuff. Can we help you? And as a consequence, um, our head of innovation at the time donated me to those groups. And that's how we started to learn. And what we found was, some of the institutional structures we had built over time governing the city didn't necessarily work the way we thought they would into the future. And as we went along with these people, we'd started to discover all sorts of new frontiers we could use to improve the place. So, so that was about four years ago. Did the city historically have um, sort of a, tr a track record or uh, framework or program around engaging the community more broadly? What, what, was, what was your level of, of relationship and engagement with the community, just more broadly around public policy and, and citizen services and things like that? Um, well, one of the funny things about working for a city is a city's last an incredibly long time and you're sort of just a link in a chain through time. And so we've gone through phases of really good engagement with parts of the community, then dropped off again and moved to other parts of the community. So it's fair to say it's a bit of a chocolate chip cookie. There's some really good stuff in there, but there's also some stuff we need to improve on. Just going a little bit deeper into the sort of community engagement piece, Sean, um, I, I suppose partially along with Canada, but New Zealand for me um, globally, I, I view as an exemplar around how it embeds and embraces, um, you know, it's, it's First Nations people and their representatives. Um, can you give our listeners a bit of a sense of, of that, um, that sort of, uh, well, so, so many words come to mind, but, but, but that sort of re relationship um, with, uh, with Indigenous populations and, you know, how Im important and how you go about doing that in an in a authentic and meaningful way? Well, one of the unusual things about New Zealand is it's one of, I think it's the only country that's founded by mutual treaty uh, with its Indigenous people. And so in 1840, we signed the Treaty of Waitangi and that established essentially a partnership with the country. Uh, it's fair to say that uh, that partnership went through some fairly rocky stages, particularly early on. 
But what it's done is provided us with a foundation of two worldviews embedded within our law. And so when we're consulting with Māori, we're working in partnership because they have a strong worldview, a worldview that is intrinsic to the constitution of the country, and it's also part of our identity. Um, one of the, the ways I tend to think of it in my own life is I tend to identify as Pākehā, which is New Zealand European. It's a Māori word, and it comes from that partnership. And those priorities help guide us towards what's important when it comes to what do we measure, how do we act, what do we do. Um, the, the sort of opportunity to sort of um, uh, leverage off that history and, and partnership and uh, influence your sort of smart city strategy, that is certainly um, uh, time for another conversation, which I, I, I want to make sure I have with you. But um, for, for now, let's, um, let's sort of pivot now. And my, my original sort of reaching out to you to join us on the Chronicles um, was around this idea that, you know, we could have a conversation and you could share a story around the idea of sort of city vendor relationship. Now, um, the reason I wanted to do that was that it, it's kind of not um, a conversation or a topic that is is sort of often discussed and, and shared and you don't read a lot of blog articles around, you know, how, how city and vendors work. Um, I, I, I know a little bit about what the city has been doing um, with its uh, with its vendor community and, and the supply side uh, of the smart cities uh, agenda. Um, so I'd love to sort of, I'd love to sort of start by asking that question. Um, how, you know, generally speaking, you know, how, how is the marketplace um, in Wellington or New Zealand, you know, give, give our listeners a sense of um, on the supply side, um, you know, what, what New Zealand has to offer and what you as a city have got, got access to i mean is it a, a thriving smart cities supply side marketplace is it is it you know is it, is it lacking do you go offshore just give me some broad broad sort of you know bullet points to start with around the, the supply side so one of the challenges with starting your smart city journey early was the market itself didn't particularly exist and it's one of the one of the things about being a public servant often we're defined in terms of market failure but we're also market makers. Because we don't necessarily operate within a market, we can create a market. And that's the situation we found ourselves in. We couldn't buy what we wanted off the shelf. We were interested in producing viable digital twins of the city, for example. And there wasn't a vendor available. So what we did was we started to work out a series of principles uh, and to componentize and modulate uh, our procurement processes. Essentially what we were doing was making a thing that could change as technology evolved, but also change through time as the city's interests changed. And what we did was we took these two different, uh, two different vendors and different partners and basically said, look, we don't know how this is exactly going to work, but we can work with you in good faith to help figure that out. We can work, this is what we're interested in, this is what we think you're interested in, this is how it'll work, and this is how it'll, how it'll work when we decide that perhaps we're not interested in the same thing anymore, and how we will continue on in our journey as a city. 
So if I, if I'm hearing you correct, Sean, um, that, that sounds very much like a, a journey, uh, a journey with a vendor that maybe didn't necessarily have a known endpoint or outcome. Um, I, I imagine there's an element of sort of jumping into that with sort of some fingers crossed, we'll hold our breath, but obviously some, some good faith and an element of, of trust there. Talk me through some of those, those sort of characteristics of the relationship that you felt were needed um, and did they exist? Did you have to, to sort of build that trust? Um, you already knew the vendors. Talk, talk to us about sort of those, those, those sort of characteristics of the relationship to, to start with. So in order to have a successful market, you have to have a successful operating framework. So what we did was when we took the city's strengths and things like open data and data standards and applied those to these relationships, which gave the people we were working with the understanding of what the city was looking to consume and what it was looking to put out and how in the future we're looking to relate with our community. Then we started to talk through what some immediate things that we want to look at. So we had things like uh, we're having difficulty with synthetic uh, stimulants uh, being sold in the streets. Uh, it was legal at the time and it was having a bunch of social effects. So we were looking at how do we better me measure that? How do we better understand the air quality in the city streets at a level people breathe at, so at the curbside rather than necessarily just at a single monitoring station? Uh, how do we show people the impact of different planning decisions and find a way to get rid of some of the abstractions that makes urban planning so difficult to understand? And so each of those little journeys sparked a different project. So for example, the how do we explain the future of the city, that led to the production of the metropolitan scale virtual reality system. So you can stand in any street in Wellington and you can see into the ground to see what the soil's substrata like, where the streams underneath the ground run, what new buildings do to different types of shadowing, uh, what the loads on different types of infrastructure look like. And through that, we then began to find other uses so we also found that we could project things like the input from the thousands of parking sensors we have to see what the patterns of car parking looked like. And so what you had was an immediate result, which was, I want to understand what the future of the city looks like, followed by a sort of unanticipated dividend, which is, I can use this to demystify the vast amount of data coming out of the sensors. And then a long-term goal of we can use this to drive investment in those digital twins and transform the way the entire planning system works. So, so Sean, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing here is that you didn't necessarily have a predefined scope of work that you just, you know, procured or put out to tender and, and sought responses. This, this, is, this is sort of uh, <laughs> fluid procurement kind of, isn't it? That's what I'm hearing, I think. It is, and what's... Ex one of the difficulties was nobody else had something like this, so we couldn't write a RFP, request for proposals. Nobody had uh, anything like this that had operated through time, so we didn't know how we were going to govern it long term. So all we could do was work out how do we build a prototype of this, how do we take that prototype and add it to other prototypes, and how do we move from a collection of a of prototypes to a functioning interoperable smart city. 
Sean, was your procurement department having a heart attack? No, they're lovely people. Um, <laughs> they it's are. Fair, it's fair to say I've condensed a journey of several years into just a few sentences. So yes, yes. They had time to adjust. Uh, but the other part of this is by breaking it into small modules, you're not actually procuring large amounts of stuff. It doesn't cost a lot. Uh, the other part of it is by using some of those public service technologies like the data standards and open data, you can distort the market sufficiently to drive down the cost of certain things and to de-risk them. What, um, what have you learned along the way? Just, just that project that you've described there, uh, which started off with, it, it, it seems, you know, some, some clear goals or outcomes the city wanted to achieve and it led you on a journey and, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the VR solution emerged and then once you were, you were immersed within that, you found all of these, you know, additional sort of benefits that, that sort of grew, you know, the solution and the platform. Um, what, 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 what did you, what were some key learnings in working with the private sector and, and vendors as, as you went through that journey, which sounds like like a couple of years. Is that, give, give me a sense of the time frame here. Yeah, you're looking at three or four years. Yeah, okay. So what'd you learn? So what we learned was, with, particularly with virtual reality, we were taking something that was regarded as a toy and turning it into a tool. Mm. And so as we were doing that, we were learning about how you use this as a tool how do you put the parameters around it to make sure you're showing people a verifiable version of reality rather than necessarily a rose-tinted artist's impression? The uh, other part of what we were doing there was starting to develop from a prototype into more of a data platform. So what we did was we started to separate the architecture between the applications which consumed it and the data that was flowing out of council that fed it. And one of the very interesting things there was we started to take companies and organizations, rather than being us being solely their customer, we also regarded them as our first customer. So what we learned from those uh, new prototypes and applications they were building was basically what form of data was required, what sort of structures, what sort of attributes were needed. And so you ended up with... Uh, that virtual reality city I was talking about being used uh, for council's particularly resilience purposes, but you were also seeing it being used for things like tourism promotion. And then when we took it back into council, we've been using it just over the last few months to outfit uh, a new library we've been building. So we've taken the, uh, the plans of the building as it's being built and we're putting the librarians in it. They're working in their teams, working out where all their equipment's gonna go how they're going to work in this new space and basically getting it ready for day one on day minus 90. So as you're building out this sort of platform and solution, um, I, I mean, is, is this a, is this a, um, a wholly owned vendor platform? I mean, are you having to go, go back to the vendor every time you want to tweak something? Talk to me about the sort of ownership or co-ownership of sort of the, the, the tech itself? Where does that sit? Where does it lie? So this is where the partnership aspect becomes really important. So the data is retained by council and will normally license it under Creative Commons. What that means is we can take an expression engine, so the, the thing that feeds the virtual reality headset, and replace it with another one 
or another one. And what you can do is create, from Council's central fountain, is create a whole series of different aqueducts. The reason we've done it that way is because over time, it allows us to switch between technologies uh, as they evolve. It also allows for specialization because it's a common problem in public service procurement. We'll go out and we'll ask for something and we'll go, oh yeah, that's wonderful. Why don't we also make it do this and this and this and this? And by the time we've, we've, we've done that, it's sort of like procuring a speedboat and then welding so much to it, you've got a lighthouse and then ordering that lighthouse to move. Uh, it just doesn't work. And what this does is allow us to introduce the and this and this and this as separate projects which have their own development streams, which feed off that initial uh, database, but don't necessarily have to start from scratch. Okay, so let me explore this with you a, a little bit more because I'm sort of imagining that, you know, the, the sort of the VR, the VR project was, you know, one kind of contained project and, you know, you, 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 you did this evolving procurement relationship thing. Um, and then what I was going to ask you was, you know, tell me about another deployment or procurement. Um, but let me go back to data for a moment. The, the, and I assume you were, you were, when you were referring to fountains and aqueducts, you were talking, the metaphor was data there and flows of data. Um, can you tell me where you're at with data and the value of and generating insights of and how that is or isn't driving additional projects and therefore um, procurement or relationships with other, other vendors? Because I assume that, you know, your engagement with the supply side now is sort of quite diverse from different perspectives. But um, I, I was getting a little bit of a sense there in that conversation that, uh, that, that, that data and, and what the city was, was sort of generating there seems to be somewhat of a bit of a potentially, a, a, you know, the heart of your smart city strategy, if, if that makes sense. Can you sort of try and respond to that, that sort of um, very unstructured question I've just asked you about data and the role of it driving other projects? Absolutely. So we work off a maxim that data is eternal and technology is temporal. So if you look at things like the land title uh, databases, which we use to run the city's taxation off, that data stretches back 150 years. So it lasts a very, very long time. But the technology which it sits on has changed from pen and parchment to geospatial databases over that time. And so what we've realized is the value of data fits very well with the permanence of government. So our key role in this is as data stewards. What we can then use that data for is to transform the relationship we have with our, our citizens and the people who elect uh, the councillors. But it also means that we can use that data to effectively give people who are looking to develop technologies a leg up. Because you don't have to start from absolute scratch, it means you can try something else. The um, part of that's led to a, a much greater consciousness of the value of data through procurement processes and a, a general 
a much better general understanding through council of things like data licensing, what Creative Commons are, and the value of uh, exclusivity and data access. And what we're now doing is starting a great deal of data literacy and education to bring up the understanding of our staff about you know, what data is. It's nothing more than a digital footprint. Uh, how does it get used? So for example, we had a, an earthquake a couple of years ago and it was quite large. It was in Kaikoura, uh, quite a long way away, but because of the size of it, it affected Wellington a great deal. It was through using data that we identified where the amount of coffee being sold in the city, in the uh, in the streets, was uh, declining. That's where we figured out where corporates had evacuated their offices as a precaution, and that's mm. where we targeted the economic development agency to engage with uh, CEOs to make sure those companies were supported. That's where we targeted building inspectors to make sure that the engineers for those buildings were supported. And so, you've got a much better understanding of the way data works, the value of it through those kinds of events and education. Sean, um, I mean, in the scale of sort of knowing what you're doing to having no clue, you guys at the city are, uh, are pretty well up there. Do you still get, um, do you still get vendors knocking on your door telling you what, what you should be doing and, and what you should be buying? Absolutely, about three a week. <laughs> so, given the journey you've been on, um, you know what's the what's the sort of average conversation with Sean Ordain when 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 the vendor sort of shows up and say, "Hey, have I got a platform to sell you?" So, I normally sort of very patiently ask them to explain it to me. Um, I don't like to assume that people I know what people are trying to sell me. Then we'll normally go through a where are the people? How can I see the impact this has on somebody's life? How does this impact my life? Then we start to work through a, um, you're not a single star, you're part of a galaxy. How do you work with all the other stars? Uh, and then as we go through these, we start to understand uh, what they're actually trying to sell us, whether they've got the kind of ethos that's going to work with us, and also to understand uh, whether they'll be happy to deal with us as partners. I mean, there are certain things that we ask people that are quite challenging. Uh, things like, so what is your exit strategy? How do we get out of this uh, uh, after four or five years? That kind of thing. And it's a confident vendor who will be able to tell us exactly how that works. Uh, are, they getting, are they getting better, Sean, the vendors? Uh, it's, sorry, better. When I say better, I should clarify that. Better, better in terms of um, their approach, their understanding, their, their willingness to sort of be more of a, you know, a, a, a friend and collaborator as opposed to, um, you know, procure this widget. Uh, I feel they are. Uh, bear in mind that many New Zealand cities are on similar paths, so they're hearing this from a number of different uh, different cities and different places there will always be a cultural gap between public servants and salespeople. We just don't think the same way and we don't have the same drivers in our lives. But it is becoming a more constructive conversation. Yeah. And I, I um, for any vendors that are listening, I, um, I didn't want to give the impression by using the words they that vendors are some other species. I mean, you know, to be quite frank, we're not going to get through this 
without uh, without the supply side and and some of the amazing solutions that they do have. So I just want to clearly acknowledge that um, um, we we're going to we're going to struggle if we don't work through this. And indeed, that's why I wanted to have this conversation because um, I think it's it's really important that um, uh, that we hear how we feel each other are going and, and I'll actually do a, a reciprocal podcast episode um, in the near future where I'll have a vendor on the line. Um, so, so let's just, um, let's just sort of build a little bit more, more off that. So, um, you know, plenty of, uh, plenty of invitations for a latte uh, each week from a vendor to, to share their sort of goods and services. Um, what, um, just going back to sort of um, whether it's that that VR project you're working on or another one, um, a, a pointed question: what's what's been maybe one of the most surprising kind of instances or experiences that you've had with a vendor? What what kind of really sort of made you go, wow? You know that that's quite incredible. We decided we would do some inquiries into artificial intelligence and machine learning, mainly so we could understand how it worked. And so one of the things they, uh, our vendors did at the time was use some of the city's infrastructure to record sounds and then apply machine learning to those sounds. And uh, being able to tell things like native bird species apart was just remarkable, just from the sound they made. Now, I can't do that with my own ears. Uh, but to see an artificial intelligence do it and then have the biologists up at the university confirm that it's actually doing it correctly. It's remarkable. So, sorry, Sean, what, what was it doing? Can you explain that to me a bit more? So uh, Wellington's unusual in that it, the area of the city's parks is about the same size as the urbanised area. Mm. And we uh, have a massive uh, trapping program and a big eco-sanctuary and we're bringing back the native birds uh, to the city. And as part of that, one of the questions that gets asked is, you fund all this stuff, is it working? So working with, uh, with a vendor and with um, the, the local university and some others, we put some um, microphones into the bird sanctuary and told them to listen, as microphones do, and then applied TensorFlow from on top of it and basically used that to classify the sounds of the birds as they came back. Wow, okay. And, and but that essentially started to give us a bit of an indicator of you know, what, what were we hearing. Another one much more close to my own life is we have a, a playground in um, Cuba Street, one of our main streets, and it's right next to a pub. And I've got two young children, and occasionally uh, I need a little respite, so I'll put the children on the playground, and then I'll sit outside in the sun watching them with a beer. And um, one of the problems is you've got a lot of glass close to a lot of children. So what we did was we trained a, uh, a uh, TensorFlow to listen for breaking glass so that we could dispatch cleaners from council and basically work out a way of picking it off, up off the ground rather than out of children's feet. And uh, any urban planner can tell you, if you want to see a su successful street, look for the children. People will only take their children into a place they feel safe and secure. Uh, they're a wonderful indicator species. 
So, okay. So, so the summary there is that, um, the, the little, the little sort of dipping the toe in the water with AI was, was quite a, an extraordinary, an extraordinary little journey there. It, it, it was, it was quite profound. And, um, uh, the the opportunity it sounds like is something that may uh, may find its way into sort of you know other other sort of strategy and and action and investment going forward in the city. Absolutely. I mean, frankly, I thought it was just a way of optimising people selling me things on the internet. I never realised <laughs> that it could make my children safer and help the local bird life. Wow. Um, Okay, so we, we just just on on bird life. Um, we, we've touched on kids. We've touched on uh, nature. Um, I remember you telling me some some time ago um, the work you did. I think, if I remember correctly, on overlaying some data sets from various levels of government and agencies and. Um, you're on some journey to look at sort of the urban design of the streets and cracked pavements and where people were injuring themselves and you were sort of layering up all these these, these sort of data sets. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the, uh, the role of your sort of smart cities journey in helping, you know, those, uh, those areas of, of social services, improving people's lives. I, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent at the moment, but I wanted to, um, wanted to sort of make sure our listeners heard some of, some of that extraordinary work that you've been doing on using the smart cities journey, um, you know, fundamentally for, for changing people's lives. We're very lucky to have a community services manager named Jenny Rains who has really embraced this technology and what we've done with Jenny's department is basically helped our local hosts so the people who go out and help tourists and report damage to the city those sorts of things help them understand a lot more about data and their value to the city so that's meant giving them uh, digital reporting apps so that they can take a picture and uh, or fill out their form online and put it straight into our mapping systems uh, it's meant going through, you know, what does privacy mean when it's applied in the streets? We don't need to know a person's name, even if you do know it, so please don't record it, uh, all those sorts of things. And what that's done is allowed us to basically expose their daily experiences to the rest of council. So we've taken a tactical thing, which is about repairing pavements and streetlights, and turned it into a strategic capability, which helps us take the, the real on-the-ground observations of those environments and design them into a better city. And that's led us to being able to understand, you know, how do things like uh, cracked pavements and liquor bans actually affect people? How does, and then what we've done is worked with a whole series of different other social agencies and health agencies to get access to their data and provide access to the data we've got to get that single view of a city. And so what that does is help us understand what does council do in, in the environment? What effect does that have on hospital admissions? How can we make little tiny changes in our maintenance budgets that stop us having to make big expenditures in the health budgets uh, to fix people up again? And what that starts to do is it starts to build out the the social side of that digital twin I was talking about earlier, and it mobilizes it in such a way that it becomes valuable to people once they, once they start to know and interact with it. 
Has, um, has all of the work that you've done and you've led uh, for the city, Sean, has that, how have vendors in the supply side sort of learned with you? How have they, I mean, what's their reaction been to the work that the city has done? I mean, do they, do they, do they view you as a leader? I mean, they, they sort of, they sell to cities all around the world and, and various different ones. How do they view Wellington and what you've done? Have they learned along the way? Uh, yes. Um, some, some vendors just don't have something that's going to work for us. Um, if they've come from a place where the social contract between citizen and government is really different um, and people are willing to put up with much greater intrusion into their lives, then it's unlikely it's going to work here in New Zealand. Mm. And so some of those companies we haven't been able to engage with. Other, other places, uh, other companies, they've been along for a journey. Other companies, we just have a straight procurement arrangement. We buy what everybody else does. Mm. Uh, we just might have a slightly different arrangement for the data. So it's it's all about how do we create that constellation of yeah. stars constantly is born and goes out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple more questions before we sort of start getting to the tail end of this conversation. Um, I, I still want to I still want to sort of ask you the question, um, uh, and I'm trying to frame it up while I'm while I'm sort of talking here. But um, if if you were to um, give some advice to the, the supply side and vendors, give some advice on um, how best to sort of um, behave. And I don't mean, you know, necessarily, you know, your behavior needs to be better, but in, in terms of sort of mindset behavior and the, and the characteristics that they bring to the table, um, what, what, what are sort of some key, some key tips, I suppose, you would share with, with the vendor community? So a key thing is to go in and, start, and listen to start with. Uh, not every city is the same. Often we require quite standard things, but in our own eyes we'll be special. So if you listen to us and work out whether what we want is actually special, uh, and give us a special thing, we'll love you. If you treat us as special but give us a standard thing, we'll probably also be happy. What we won't be happy with is someone who comes in and tells us how to run a stage. Mm. Is, uh, is that happening? Do you see that happening? Do you hear of that happening? Uh, it does happen. Um, I normally very quietly nod. I'm, I'm very, very tall. And people tend to think, Big animals are dumb animals, so I, <laughs> I smile like an idiot and then show them what we can actually do after about half an hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and is, is it fair to say, I suppose, just within your somewhat of a microcosm of, uh, of Wellington sort of slash broader New Zealand, um, ha- has it gotten better over the years that you've been on this journey? Um, it, it, it's, has it gotten easier? Has it gotten easier to deal with the supply side as the broader industry and movement has evolved over the last few years? Is it getting easier? Uh, for some areas of smart cities, yes. For other areas, no. Uh, in some areas, you've got sort of a market which has evolved. 
but it's a market that's evolved in a relatively small place that's now going wider. And the rules that are used at one scale aren't necessarily working at, a, at the other scale. And so what we'll find is, um, for example, if, say, um, a bin man manufacturer produces large bins, they'll come in with their standard offering and not understand that it's not going to fit and we don't necessarily have those problems. And it's quite hard to shake. Um, other areas of smart cities, particularly in the artificial intelligence, that stuff's becoming a lot easier to deal with and we're starting to see the emergence of more standardised product offerings. Is there a particular area, Sean, that you think needs a lot of help, needs a lot of work? Uh, uh, artificial intelligence is one area where I feel that there's a lot of work to be done to make it a viable market. The main reason for that is we're in danger of the capability of the device, of the, the thing, outpacing our ability to govern it effectively. And so what that means is it's very difficult to work out how you work through some of the, the ethical and practical overtime records issues of artificial intelligence and procure it at the same time. And so we, we need a little bit more leadership, particularly from central governments, on, on that to stabilise that market. Um, Sean, we're almost at, at time, and I want, to, um, I want to sort of transition now to a couple of little questions for you sort of personally about the year coming. Um, a question I ask uh, our, our sort of guests is, um, what are you most excited about in, in 2019 coming up? So we've got a lot of really interesting projects that are coming to fruition, uh, particularly with the next generation of virtual reality, uh, but also re-engaging with much more effort in uh, the Internet of Things and really understanding how some of our cities functioning and seeing whether that accords with the way we think it's functioning. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a good sort of confirmation verification to have, isn't it? What we think and what's actually happening. Um, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, my final question to guests from cities that I have join us. Um, my question is, um, who have you got a smart cities crush on? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I quite I've, I I tend towards the European mm. European cities mainly because we use European standards for our work, um, so it's easy to lift things from them. To be honest, uh, I've just been up in Taranaki, up on the west coast of the North Island, and there is the most amazing group up there doing uh, penguin monitoring and measuring when penguins are at home and how many chicks they have using uh, these little tiny digital cameras uh, that I'm just loving. And they're just starting a project on with a very remote community that has a whole lot of bridges going up a, a river valley on, working out basically how do people at the end of the valley know that all the bridges are washed away or not. Um, so I quite like that kind of thing. Yes, well, that wasn't Europe, but... Um... Uh, I, I love I, I, I love stories like that. Um, Sean Ordain, thank you um, so much for joining us, um, sharing uh, a bit of your journey and story from uh, Wellington City Council in New Zealand, but also, um, you know, helping me sort of talk through some of those often not 
discussed issues around city vendor relationships. So, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. It was a pleasure. Uh, for our listeners um, who may not uh, have uh, caught some of our previous uh, episodes of the Smart Cities Chronicles, you can subscribe if you head to our website, smartcitychronicles.com. Um, and, of course, we're on those uh, common podcast platforms through Apple iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Um, my guest today has been Sean Ordain, now uh, the innovation lead from Wellington uh, City Council uh, from uh, the beautiful country of New Zealand. Uh, listen in to some of the other episodes where cities have shared uh, their journeys. Uh, there'll be more future episodes coming uh, where we speak to city leaders. Uh, but for, th for the time being, uh, thanks for listening in and keep well.